This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. You're doing well. I know it's been a while since you've heard this voice on this podcast, but we're back and we're diving heavily into lots of draft talk. The first of which with who I think is my favorite draft analyst. And I don't mean to do this to flatter. I just mean to introduce them in a way that I think correctly describes their presence in, uh, in the dialogue, in the field. P.D. Webb, whose work I think is expansive, it's intelligent, and uh, I, I enjoy it very much. He's here to discuss Jalen Green, how he pertains to the Raptors, and the in-depth stuff on, on his game. You can find his Twitter at AboveTheBreak3. You can just type in PD Web Patron on Google, and you'll find all of his stuff. PD, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, you know. Um, uh, flattered, but, but great. Uh, wonderful to be here and talk about a... Uh... Uh, a prospect that I've tremendously enjoyed watching the the past couple of years. Okay, so let's just dive right in then. Tremendously enjoying Jalen Green. He looks like a guy who could go as high as two. I've heard you say elsewhere that you heard more buzz for Mobley for number one than you'd heard for Green. Of course, most of, if not all, the buzz is still for Cade at number one. I know you're not sourced out like Shams or Woj, but do you have any inkling on what the feeling is around Jalen Green, his range? Although it's obviously a very small range at this point. Yeah, I think I think that um, just based on how the lottery fell, it, it's two to four. Um, I think that if a team with a like true primary creator had gotten number one um, already on their roster, then like Jalen would make a lot more sense uh, because his. Uh, his ability to complement that sort of player who makes more decisions is phenomenal. Um, not that he can't do that, just that I think that his highest outcome is is being um, the the heavy scorer, but not necessarily the heavy decision maker. Um, I think that he could go two or he could go four unless Cleveland makes a trade at three. Um, I've been under the assumption that this is going to be the wackiest draft in, about, in, in the last five or so years, um, just based on how the lottery fell, how many teams have double picks, uh, how many players are available in trades, something that I'm sure the Raptors have been talking about quite a bit, and uh, and how many things can go sideways from you know where we stand as a mock draft now to what happens on draft night. Okay. And so we have a, a couple questions pertaining to this thing, which I'll just cover quick based from the Raptors' point of view. And it's moving up in the draft to two or three, presumably to make sure that they get – one of Mobley or one of Green. And in this scenario, I think it's quite obvious that the Raptors would be betting that they'd end up with Suggs and they don't view his potential as highly as the other two. I think recently to move up in that gap has been 
close to like a future pick and a, you know, a decent future pick. So with the Raptors, it becomes tough because you're probably projecting them as a decent team at the very least next year, especially if they're getting a, a prospect of the caliber of a Mobley or a green and moving up to get them. But historically it hasn't been too heavy a price. It's typically been a future pick in like one of the next two years drafts. So I guess it really depends on who's above the Raptors and what they're willing to take, how they see the projected prospects lining up with their own timeline how they evaluate those guys because Cleveland could be super low on one of Mobley or Green, for example, and could be, you know, irrationally high to some people on Suggs. And so I can only go by the history of these kinds of moves. And I think it would maybe be like somewhat, not a blue chip prospect on the Raptors, but a meaningful young player and perhaps a pick or just straight up a future pick, depending on what the other team is willing to take and depending on if they have a guy a little bit later if they have a guy who they think will be around four or five or six or whatever then there's a lot of mobility and as pd said it could get really wacky so i think that's as far as anybody could go right now outside of somebody who is absolutely completely plugged into the raptors front office which appears to be nobody ever so uh yeah but that's that's asked by mark nisbet and deandre ayton who is ayton tovin who co-host the uh, off-court podcast which i think is one of the best things you could listen to right now so great we'll get into jalen green let's do the cliff notes walk me through what i'm supposed to like about his game and what might underwhelm me um i mean i think that the thing that jumps out initially with jalen green is that he's like the prototypical two guard um and that he is ultra explosive he gets downhill um in a hurry and then does spectacular things when he gets there um in the sort of like mid 2000s uh, guard mold, he's also like a, a tremendous shot maker. So the last two years he spent, I would say most of his development on uh, shooting off the dribble. So um, teams that, that are pushing him towards screens, he's very comfortable taking side steps and step back threes and, and shooting them at a good percentage. Um, the thing about youth development is like, it may not be like what looks like an NBA percentage, but if like you're shooting 34% on difficult shots as a, as a high schooler or 32% on really difficult shots as a high schooler, like that's very good. Um, just because like, you know, the, the percentages eventually come around. It's, it's getting, getting them off in games and, and getting the rates off in games that are more important. And I think that when a lot of people who come from an NBA perspective, see that kind of stuff, like who, who aren't, you know, meshed in, in, in the draft year round, um, like some of us are cursed to be, um, it it can be like oh yeah like i have him for the lifetime of attempts which is uh all of his fiba stuff the one year of adidas the one year of nike uh the ignite year and his senior season at prolific prep i have him at 32 percent from three um but considering the self-creation volume volume that's pretty awesome um you'd obviously you know i think he will be a shooter off the dribble long term and that's sort of the the combination of being able to uh east bay in the half court um if teams uh, bite on the jumper and if they sag off being able to knock it down, um, that scoring pathway is the thing that jumps out. Um, I mean, I think the things that, that maybe like, will I don't want to say disappoint, but the differences between him and, and like a Cade or uh, the, uh, what we would consider like heliocentric big wings is that he's a scorer first. He can pass. He's, he's a solid playmaker, but he's not um, a player that would be asked to have the ball in their hands for 80% of all, all possessions. 
Um, he's best making fast decisions against a defense in rotation, whether that's in transition, um, whether that's on the swing, um, and punishing defenses for any mistake it makes, um, uh, guarding him one-on-one or not sending help over the top. Uh, and while it's it's not bad, it's just not to the level that, that we would have expected from wings in the top five in recent years. I think that with the successes of Anthony Edwards in the second half of the season and to some degree the successes of Zion, that like there are different pathways of of uh, like guards who take primary usage but secondary decision-making volume as a really uh, positive player archetype and a player development strategy. So not as comparison points, but more so a frame of reference. If we're looking at difficult shot-making, allowing for growth at the next level, Jason Tatum is somebody I've heard you talk about in relation to making tough shots, taking tough shots, being bored with the process of lower level basketball. And then also with the playmaking bent, there's guys like Devin Booker, for example, or Zach Levine, who were score first, and they've slowly been accumulating playmaking chops. Is there anything, any type of crossover there that you see as far as development or skill? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Devin liked the mid-range a little bit more Tatum was always bigger. And like, that's the thing that really uh, makes development wonky. If you can just like be jumbo sized, it's really hard to develop. Cause like what's a high schooler supposed to do to high school senior Jason Tatum. He can get whatever shots he wants to. Um, Green is an overwhelming athlete, but it's also really skinny. So like there are types of guys who do trouble him um, just, just based on his, his uh, high hips and, and his a little bit loser dribble. Um, I think Zach Levine's an interesting point because like uh, Jalen is a much, much better playmaker than Zach was at the same age. So I think that the development of Zach Levine has been informative to how Jalen Green like approached the process and was like, oh, okay, like our, our games are, you know, somewhat similar aesthetically and and we certainly like to get to the same spots. So taking, you know, the experiences that that Zach had at his fresh or his uh his first two years in the league and sort of dislocating them onto like junior and and sophomore, uh, Jalen Green is sort of what allowed him to develop playmaking at a faster pace rather than just coming in and being like, Yeah, I'm here to get twenty, you know, and, and get an assist here or there when there's no option for me to score. He's he's definitely not approaching the game from from that way, which I felt like Zach was um, certainly in his uh, his one year at UCLA. You you talked about that 32 percent that three point shooting. Let's dive just a little bit deeper into that jump shot, pull up mechanics. Is there you know a ceiling you see for him at the next level? Is there a wide variety of shots that you think he'll be making from three? Or do you think he'll be more versatile in the mid-range? And then I guess in a little bit, we'll talk about, you know, craft at the rim and guile and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I do want to clarify like two quick things. Um, the first is that like that 32% is the lifetime for that's going back all the way to him being 16 years old. For just the G League sample, on 85 attempts, he shot 36.5%, which is very positive considering the... Um, considering like the, the, this is with an NBA line, uh, which basically everybody else doesn't shoot with. The second thing is that the G League experimented with a two-for-one free throw rule. So this makes true shooting and free throw rate a little bit wonky. Um, so if you go to like websites like Tankathon or Basketball Reference and look at the G League stats, they have used the, they have assumed that the regular free throw attempts, not the G League attempts, and that makes everybody's uh, free throw rate skew downward and their true shooting skew because it looks like they scored more on less attempts because every free throw was worth two until two minutes of the uh, each end of each half. Okay. That's, that's definitely worth pointing out. Okay. So if we are looking at the 
because that's what we're seeing in the playoffs currently is guys who aren't all out superstars. They become infinitely more valuable in the vacuum of the playoffs by having, you know, quite a few counters out of the pick and roll, typically somewhat in isolation, pulling up from, you know, a wide variety of places. There's a lot of guys, you know, I know you like the the stutter rip from Jimmy Butler as, you know, a setup and a finishing piece, but for example, Jalen Green, is there something you see that he's very clearly going to be developing at the next level? Yeah, um, I would say the two moves that, or I'd say there's three moves that really like jump out for his creation setup. Like he loves to play out of hang dribbles, which are sort of like between the legs where you bounce, you're, you bounce up and you're trying to get the defender to rise up. Um, if they, you know, if they rise up, you can blow by them. If they stay down, you just can just hop directly into your jumper. Um, he loves sidesteps. Um, huge, you know, long legs. Um, the short shorts do extenuate how long his legs are, but um, he's he's really capable of getting like uh, horizontal separation. So if players aren't the fastest uh, or the quickest in small spaces, he can just hard pound dribble, sidestep, cover about six feet of space, and pull up. And then the last one, I think it's probably the most dangerous, is a, a move called T Mac, where uh, you drive the ball downwards and you 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 know plant your front foot like you're going to to blow by them. And most defenders, you know, especially when you're covering somebody like Jalen Green, who's you know incredibly quick downhill, probably has the best first step in the draft. They back off, and then you simply kill your forward momentum and pull up in that. So hard dribble, lower your center of gravity, push, you know, just like you're going to the hoop, and then you stop directly at three point line to pull up. Obviously made famous by you know former Raptor Tracy McGrady. Um, I think that I was really really positive about the the development that he had. Uh, shooting off the dribble. Uh, he took 61 off the dribble attempts, not just threes, just uh, any off the dribble twos included. Um, that's how Synergy logs these things, um, which is, uh, and he got uh, 0.87 points per possession, which to me is is pretty good. Um, he's also doing it on like, not all off the dribble attempts are, are created the same. You have to, you know, sidestep into them, T-Mac into them, you know, hang dribble poles. Uh, 0.87 points per possession is, is, is pretty awesome. So as far as, what he's working with currently, how that's going to translate. Is this a guy you see, and not definitively, but he'll have a range of outcomes. Do you see a lot of those outcomes, including a guy who can get an offense out of a lull, can plug in and can stop runs, and perhaps can be one of those guys who you hand the ball to at the end of a game when teams aren't giving you much? The only thing left is, you know, advantage creation for yourself, and this is what comes of it. Yeah, I would say that that's probably one of the better bets in this class is that like that's sort of the thing that I think he comes into really easily is the is the shot creation is is the ability to, to knock down tough shots and the ability to, to create open spaces for himself, especially going horizontally and backwards. Um, the mechanics are, are one two. Um, he shoots a little bit um, like with a little bit of of sweep uh, in his lower body. So his legs can flare out a little bit. Um, it's it's honestly a, a pretty uh, uh, technically smooth jumper. I think that there is uh, I think that there is some room for it to be smoothed down in terms of time it takes to get out of his hand. Um, you know, there's a small hitch at the top. Uh, sometimes he hesitates a little bit to pull it, um, but all in all, like it's a, I would say maybe Wiggins is the last like hyper athlete who had this good looking of a jumper. Um, usually, those two things aren't. Uh, Congress for for um, for for youngling prospects and the jumper comes later, but it's it's fairly developed with with a good amount of versatility. Excellent.
okay, let's let's get into a little bit of the playmaking. You talked about him being more advanced coming out of the draft than uh, than Zach Levine in UCLA. But so for Raptors fans who are listening, you know, you, maybe you won't be able to put it into words, but you know the passes you see that are most often made by certain players. Like OG Ananobi attacking a closeout from the 45 extended, the ball probably is going to end up in the opposite corner if he's making that pass. The help side is going to come over. That's the pass he's going to make, and he's going to make it when he has one foot in the paint. Fred Van Vliet, it could go to either corner. It could go to above the break. Either way, he's probably not getting all the way to the rim. These are the passes that he's making. And Pascal Siakam has a wider variety of passes that he makes, although turnovers are kind of coupled with that. A lot of times because he's getting pressure in doubles. What are the good passes that you're seeing from Jalen Green a lot of the time? And is there mistakes he makes often as a playmaker? Yeah, I mean, I think that his best passes um, are when he has the ball around shoulder level. Um, he's He has like small pocket passes, but he generally likes to play outside of his body. So like his, his handle is based on like these big looping movements and, and trying to get defenders to lose a little bit of their balance. And that's where his best passes come from too, is just getting the ball out quick. It's not always like one-handed hook passes, but he has a variety outside of his body. Um, the areas where it's a little bit more difficult is when you put him in small spaces. I mean, this is another problem with his handle, which we'll which we'll get to, is that when he has to play within his body, when he has to you know play out of uh, snaking a pick and roll and and the defender's tight and, and the big is within reach range, like he doesn't have a ton of passing options there. Um, I think that he reads the floor well. He's just not always he doesn't always have the passing craft to get everything you want out of it. Um, this is fairly well suited for, for being a second side creator or a big space creator out of a uh, high pick and roll. Um, and like, I think that this is a, a good match of, of form and function where like the passes where he's uh, bad at are, are just generally like situations that I necessarily wouldn't want to put him in on his rookie contract. Um, let's dive a little bit into the ball handling. And then I think we'll finish off the offensive side with him specifically. And then we'll get into fit offensively after that, but ball handling, common counters he has to certain types of defense. We've seen Patrick Beverly, you know, maybe more of it is that he smashed into Booker's nose. Maybe more of it is that he's, you know, he's locked in those knees. He's really up in him and he's establishing contact very early. But what does Green have in his toolkit to kind of get around the Patrick Beverly and then maybe a less affecting defender who's kind of going to get caught up on the occasional screen maybe die a little bit on it, who's going to chase without much you know, drama and all that kind of stuff. What, what do you make of his, his ball handling so far? So I think that Beverly is sort of the type of defender that, that Green would thrive against because um, what, what Jalen Green wants a defender to do is try to get in his handle. He wants them to, to try to like, you know, rip and, and to react to every little movement he has because he's most likely quicker than them. Um, he's most likely, you know, more explosive and he can cover ground faster. And so he wants a defender who's really reactive, who is, uh, you know, going to to change heights with him, is going to change balance with him, and he can just win on the margins there. The sort that gives him trouble is the guys who don't really react to much, who sit there in their strength and say, like, okay, this is the spot I want. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm going to pressure you, but I'm not going to to react to anything. I'm just going to sit down and stay down. Um, like, sort of like a Jake Ratter would give him a, a lot more problems. Um, the... His handle is based on getting north-south, and it is it is north-south very violently. 
So he wants to get a, you know, when he explodes forward, he wants to get that defender. If he can't turn the corner leaning forward, then he can snatch back. Um, when you get him in tight spaces, I think his worst habit as a ball handler isn't necessarily sloppiness. It's that he'll bail. So that if he gets into a tight space, he will, you know, retreat back into an open space and try to attack again. Um, sort of like how OG has that, or, or OG and I guess uh, Pascal, but I think it's a little better now, has the habit where that when they get stuck, they just half spin um, in space to like sort of reset. Uh, like a, a two, move, two moves don't work and they're like, okay, half spin and they'll try to reattack. Green has that, but it's a big retreat, like two steps backwards to, to go attack again. And to me, it reads more as comfort. Like it's a thing he doesn't really need to do, but he just wants to, to find big spaces again. Um, handle is a weird thing to develop because it's, it's, it's more stylish. Like it's stylistic. Um, uh, it's more of an art than a science and, and finding things that work for your comfort level and work for where you want to go. Um, are more important. So, like, you would never say, like, OG has a fantastic handle. But, o- or, uh, sorry, Pascal. I don't know why I'm, I'm looking at OG's name and keep saying Pascal. Or, I'm not saying Pascal. Like, Pascal doesn't have a great technical handle. But Pascal almost always gets where he wants because he knows exactly what he needs to get there. And he has moves specifically tailored for most of the coverages the teams have. Even then, you have the opposite guys who can do a lot of moves, but they're not suited to where they need to go and how the defenses are covering them. I think Green eventually will get to a point where he is comfortable in tight spaces. And part of that is just getting stronger. So, you know, getting a more mature body, lowering his hips down and, and, you know, being comfortable playing at low speeds um, in a circumstance where you are playing with Fred Van Fleet and Kyle Lowry, uh, two people who are very good playing at, at slow, if not dead stop speeds. Um, I would imagine you get a little more trip, uh, tips and tricks uh, of the craft, but it's, it's generally positive with some small, uh, idiosyncratic stuff that I would say could pretty easily be cleaned up with scheme and, and development. Okay. So this probably feeds, you know, into the secondary action or sorry, second side action stuff and secondary creator. But as far as wanting to get into big spaces, when he resets that you talked about it being like to be stronger, because when you're in the close spaces, you get moved around a lot, but does that speak to his proprioception and for the listener, his sense of self, in space and how he perceives, you know, the other moving objects or not moving or what objects around him in space. And a lot of the best players typically have a high level of feel in proprioception. What do you make of his and how he kind of conveys himself around the court in those scenarios? Yeah, I I think that he does have a, a good proprioceptive sense. I think the bigger issue is that his sense of balance and his sense of leverage are a little less developed than proprioception. Like he's, he doesn't lose the ball in, in ways that would, would concern me, but it's just that, that close space, he knows that players can get under his hip level. He knows that, um, like, I guess it's a high level of knowledge himself because he knows he's weaker there. I mean, being a teenager playing against pros is never um, particularly easy physically, um, unless you're built like Braun and, uh, and Jalen, you know, isn't. Um, so I would say that the concern is, is just lowering that, that, uh, that center of gravity, lowering, um, lowering the thresholds for which he bails. Like I think the bail is always going to be an option for him and thing that he probably uses because it's it's effective when he retreats and the defender gets too aggressive and he can, you know, hit a, a big space counter. But just lowering how often he needs it would go a long way for his uh, ball handling effectiveness. Okay, so let's let's tie this up then. Do you think it's again? This is how many outcomes there are, the likelihood of you know the high level outcomes a guy who most likely will be able to get himself 
to most of the places on the floor that he likes. He'll be able to snake the pick and roll into the middle. He'll, he can probably gnash a pick and roll at some point in time. And he'll have the handle to take different angles off of screens in the pick and roll. And presumably to put the ball down after a closeout, as he's done in G League, like you said, like an East Bay in the half court, stuff like that. But the handle, it's, it's, a, it's a pro rather than a con at this point and probably will project as one. Yes. Um, it's a pro in like most situations for him. And the cons are things that the Raptors specifically don't have to worry about. Like um, in a, if a team that needed somebody to make, you know, a thousand decisions in a game, and was just like, you know, we're going to one, four high, uh, or we're going one, four flat every possession and you just have to figure it out. Um, that would be a situation where the cons would be more obvious and, and the cons would be um, something that is going to be crept out on an NBA floor for a number of years, but because the Raptors have, uh, I would say, uh, a very good you know, like team structure in a way that like, they're a very set team structure with with uh, multiple tiers of usage that are cemented and, and confirmed at a playoff level. Like they don't necessarily need those things and those are like, those weaknesses aren't going to necessarily need to be revealed and that they can be worked on in, in a uh, practice setting and, and, you know, as needed. Right. So there's like the heliocentric possession where you're getting engaged in like a trap or a double and you escape dribble and you can, you still keep your dribble live rather than passing out. And you're just trying to engage the defense in like constant can mouse. He could develop that. That's probably in the cards, but that won't be asked of him to take on these huge things. But you talked about leverage earlier, and I think leverage is a really big part of getting to the free throw line, is leveraging the, how the defender is playing and getting them in tough circumstances. So for Raptors fans, they probably see Fred Van Vliet get hit at the rim a lot. Maybe they think, wow, Fred should be shooting like 10 free throws a game. But the, the fact of the matter is that Fred is usually throwing himself into established set defenders and they're in really good positions. Whereas Kyle Lowry, for example, who is of similar stature to of a similar stature to Fred is able to compromise defenders a lot of times and leverage that compromised position into free throws. Jalen green, what do you think his sense is for a compromising defenders and then the recognition when he has them compromised to get easy points, for example? I think that it's mostly positive. Um, sometimes he can catch and hold, um, which I think goes back to our, our you know, conversation about like not needing a heliocentric role, where like, catching and holding is sort of the benefit, is that you can assess the situation and play it slowly. Like, I think the best usage of, of Jalen Green is giving him situations that are uh, a little bit more tilted so he can make those rates faster. And he can use his quickness immediately, um, can use his his tools in a, a second side way, whether it's a, a Nick screen or a stampede action or like a zipper action where he can just hit. And um, it's not that he's like, I don't think he's a slow processor. I just think that like he's not at the stage right now where he know he can instantly punish like all five defenders on the court from a high position. He's much better at, at you know, he's much better at assessing and punishing two or three defenders, like one side of the floor than five right now. And, and that could be built towards, um, I think that your idea about leverage is, is really important for like how he finishes. Um, because like he gets fouled a good amount. I have it at 
297 from, from my own calculations of the free throw rate, which is good, especially against, uh, you know, uh, pros rather than, than college players. But he's he's good at creating contact, but he hasn't quite figured out how to create contact in a way that benefits him every time. So, like, uh, skinny guys, like, creating contact doesn't necessarily mean you get fouled. You have to figure out a way of doing it where, it, like, you have to get fouled early so you you know you can find a way to finish. You have to get fouled in a way that you you can extend out rather than just collecting, you know, what what may or may not be a free throw or, or you know, somebody bumping you in air and suddenly you have to throw a bad shot if uh, if the ref doesn't pull the whistle. And I think that, that that craft and that understanding of where his physical tools lie with regards to, to the whistle, which, like, if you're going to be a scorer, understanding how to get the best whistle, whistle possible for your skill set is an essential uh, an essential element to be added during uh, every summer, um, and that's the stuff that like he's good at. But there's still areas for growth uh, f- to punish teams that think they can you know uh, be physical with him uh, in in the half court because he is on the on the slight side. Okay, and as far as in air creativity, I heard you make comparisons to Jamal Murray. Everybody should be well acquainted with Jamal Murray's incredible hang and finishes and. He's got a lot in his bag. Jalen Green, as far as being able to finish both hands at the rim, around contact, a wide variety of finishes. Like Pascal Siakam, that was his, you know, his call to fame in his first year was the sheer amount of shoulder slots he could release from and angles and just his bank shots and everything like that. It seemed like there was a magnet in the rim. What do you make of Jalen Green's finishing so far? He has more hang time than Jamal. And... Um, at times I think that he tries to use it more like instead of going for cheap, like grifty fouls where like, if you jump into a defender a certain way, they will always call a foul. And if you jump a different way, they basically will never call it. Um, and like at times I feel like he tries to hang through, um, uh, like big man challenges. Like if a big goes vertical, he can hang in the air long enough that that's no longer an issue. Um, there's a clip against, I think it's the, uh, Minnesota Timberwolves G league affiliate, um, that, the he's in the air so long that a uh, NBA level big, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, uh, is touching the ground before Green releases, and they jump at the same time. It's it's really uh, special. I don't. The craft is still developing. Like he has a number of of goofy foot finishes. He has a number of uh, like little floaters. But the central idea of like always jumping with an advantage, which like to me is what Pascal is like best at, is that every every jumper or every shot he takes around the rim, like he already has an inherent advantage and he's sort of crafted a number of situations where green can, can jump and be like, well, an arrow, I can hang time or figure out this. Like it's Pascal generally shoots from like an almost always win situation. And green is still, still has some situations where like bad things can happen if a defender plays at a certain way. Uh, let's get to fit then. And so offensively, there's a couple of things I'm thinking about. The Raptors, typically their pick and roll is run to service scoring for the big man or scoring on an action outside of the pick and roll. You know, a swing pass, something like that. They're just not, they haven't employed, you know, a player who had the talent or the skill to score in bunches out of that play type. Or they had Kyle Lowry who could do it when he wanted to but wasn't necessarily inclined. And before that, it was DeMar DeRozan who made it his business to develop a significant amount of craft, both as a scorer and playmaker in that play type. 
and then, you know, it kind of fell through in the playoffs when teams go under, they pinch in differently, that kind of stuff. But Jalen Green, pick and roll in the Raptors, you know, their scheme, their organization, where you said there's multiple tiers of established usage. He's going to have to play off Pascal Siakam, who it looks like the Raptors are going to indulge more often in post-up playmaking than they are in downhill pick-and-roll playmaking. And then also playing off of presumably Fred Van Vliet, if he ends up on the Raptors, right? Presumably Fred Van Vliet spraying out passes. So it seems like he's going to have to try and form up and space out off of post-ups on occasion, and he'll be attacking a lot of closeouts, it seems. And then the Raptors will sprinkle in presumably some pick-and-roll possessions for him. But in those situations, next to the players you know that the Raptors, that, that are a very big piece on the Raptors, what do you make of his fit offensively? I would say it's probably the best fit for him. Um, and I think it's partially because the Raptors are going to give more post-up possessions to Siakam. Uh, my, I think, ideal usage for, um, for Jalen Green would be like a more a slightly pick and roll heavier version of what Ant-Man got in the second half of or his year under Chris Finch, um, where basically the Timberwolves guaranteed that Ant-Man never touched the ball without an advantage. And he never, like he got to read the best possible floor so that he wouldn't have to make harder, more nuanced NBA choices. Um, I think that Jalen Green is a, a more developed pick and roll passer and a much like has a higher level feel. But the sort of actions that you can build where it's like there are lob options, you know, that that are available if the defense doesn't, you know, doesn't respect the, it over top, you know, adding uh, uh, adding a like an Iverson cut to the, to the middle of a pick and roll so that, you know, that if if help side doesn't help over, then you have a, a quick, you know, advantage recognition moment where the older point guards can be like, OK, help's not there. You know, let the let, let Jalen Green be downhill. Um, those things make a lot of sense if you're giving Pascal more uh, like post looks and, and giving him uh, opportunities to, to finish off dump offs. I think that an amount of pick and roll is, is good for him, like as it is for most young players, but too much can let them to drown in, in like all of the difficulties that are reading an NBA defense from a uh, heavy usage perspective. And I just, I would like to see uh, Green in a varied. Uh, like almost if, if you're a football watcher, like jet sweep circumstances where you just design, you know, an element of every play where he's on the floor or if he touches the ball, he's reading until it's a defenses and the defense has to respond to that because Jalen green downhill um, results in very bad circumstances. Like just, it is, it is not good if you're a help defender. Um, and I think that that's an element that uh, in the offense that you're outlaying, would be very helpful. And when you add the shooting on top of it, I think Jalen Green is a better shooter than Ant-Man as well. I would say that he has shown more consistent flashes of, of off-the-dribble shooting as well. So I think that you don't have to go to the degree that Finch went to with Ant-Man, but that's definitely a blueprint I would be interested in exploring. I mean, like, you know, what what Zion did in the second half of the year in terms of, of those uh, playmaking packages, obviously very different bodies, but the idea is the same is that you can tilt a defense with his uh, like rim gravity and how concerned teams are going to be about him attacking a difficult closeout and use that to create situations for others. And that may include getting like, if you send him on a, you know, a weak side lob, maybe the, the big helps him one step over the ball gets entered to Pascal and Pascal has an easier post opportunity. Like 
you can build a synergistic offense with the pieces that you described pretty easily. And I think that uh, it's one that benefits the developments of multiple players at once. Yeah, the Raptors had a lay that they used to run with Lowry and DeRozan a lot that ended up in a lob. And it, obviously it's it's peppered in a lot of their a lot of their games together. But I do I do think, yeah, Green I think it would be a similar type of deployment as Norman Powell, wherein, you know, you have your Iverson cuts, you have a lot of flares, you have a lot of pin downs, and you are getting those advantages. And not only are you asking to make the right reads attacking downhill off of that, if that's available. But it's screen craft. Are you going to reset? Are you going to back out of, you know, a pin down if the guy cheats? That kind of stuff. Just adding in all those small decisions to make that do eventually help you with, you know, your translation to the pick and roll as well because you're constantly seeing different permutations of how guys defend screens, where their feet are, and that will just help, I guess, chunk in your brain. Your brain will start kind of orienting how, how you want to do these things. So, Okay. That's good. So you've talked before about Jalen Green and shot preparedness or balance. Something as small as dipping the ball too low, you know, getting to larger spaces when not necessary. Are there other small and correctable things you're seeing with his game? I don't think that there's too much other than like what we've talked about to this point. I can speak to something that has really developed that um, is always concerning when you watch like young uh, players who can really get up is how they land. Um, learning how to land on dunks is like a real skill and it's one that adds multiple years onto, uh, onto uh, a player's career and frequently, you know, saves a year here and there from, from knee injuries. Like the most dramatic, uh, you know, landing growth is, is Russell Westbrook. If you go and watch him, you know, at UCLA or his first couple of years in the league, like some of the landings he's taking are legitimately like they will hurt you once you've noticed it because, you know, his, his, his knees are way in front of his toes. He's not balance and you have to learn how to like take we take falls learn how to 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 balance yourself uh, wall falling to you know land on hip pads to, to land on like land on your butt sometimes and these are the things that keep you from you know having like weird like not just strains in the moment but putting extra pressure on knees that are already you know playing 82 nba games and jumping up and down all the time and when he was younger i was really worried about it because he took some tough uh like i would say similar to cole anthony like really difficult landings and then i was you know prepared to see some, a lot of that similar with the with the g league ignite and there was a focus on on not landing improperly um almost like even when his legs would be like knocked out from under him um you know whether it's by trying to like do a windmill in traffic or you know like a, a pretty frequent one is where like players will try to bring uh, it's like not like will bring the ball back to their hip level to try to punch it as hard as possible with one um and like that's one where legs usually kick out and you get some, some rough landings. And I watched like 10, 15 of those, and he landed pretty well on all of them. Um, so I would say landing on dunks and landing on just uh, explosiveness uh, is a craft thing that I really saw improvement from him, which points to proper exception. The stutter steps and going to the ground and all of that stuff probably, as you said, will add years to his career, even though you know he's feeling the effects of that stuff now. But... <laughs> Yeah, I do. I do cringe a lot when I see like you go back to the hip, you come forward. It's like a lever and pulley system. The way your body works, your right foot is up by your shoulder. Your left foot lands flat footed and like everything just the shock absorption there. Terrible. But okay. So it sounds like we've covered mostly everything as far as offense goes. Let's talk defense. 
something that's very important to Nick Nurse, even though the Raptors weren't an impressive team this last year. They're probably going to want decent defensive performances out of guys that they draft. So Jalen Green, defensive feel, what are common mistakes that you've seen made by him? What are common good decisions that you see made by him? So I will say that playing in the G League is uh, like this was never the before the pandemic. The idea was to have the G League ignite like barnstorm around the world and play U23 and, and U19 teams, um, you know, from the NBA academies and, and international clubs. And because of the pandemic, they, you know, played against the G League in a bubble. Uh, one of the reasons why I would say that the, the G League didn't want to play like the G League teams initially is the like Raptors 905 and, you know, the Spurs teams run uh, offensive sets that put pressure on all five positions. And there's hammer screens and, you know, uh, players are, are ghost cutting. There's a Getty happening, a 45 cut on, you know, on, on pick and rolls when it's on the opposite slot. And if there's one thing that teenagers are not good at, it's communicating on defense and, and uh, internalizing uh, defensive spacing. So, like, what these players are guarding is basically more difficult than anybody else in the draft class and, and kind of, like, more difficult than almost anything that we usually see because there's also, you know, defensive three seconds and, and you know, the, the standard NBA rules. So when watching this tape, there has to be an acknowledgement that, like, this is uh, this is playing on very hard mode. Um, that being said, um, I think the thing that he is best at is, is leveraging his quickness. Um, he like can recover from, he can reattach from screens really, really well. Um, he has some difficulty fighting, uh, over, I think, uh, and under is, is the thing that he's good at. Uh, but he will reattach to a hip very quickly and leverage his quickness. Um, which is a, if you're going to be skinny, um, it's important to be persistent at point of attack. Um, the things that, that are difficult, I mean, or the things that, that are going to be trouble is like you have a quick athletic guy who wants to get out and transition. They're going to gamble. Um, he's not super bad with it. You'll only have a couple of bad gambles where like he's, he's gunning for something that he just has no chance at. But it's a mentality when he's off ball that he is, you know, hunting for, for an errant pass or, um, you know, a deflection, um, which is, I think, a, a way for him to value at in time. But, you know, against... Uh, against like, I mean, the Raptors 905 game is, is probably the first time that anybody had seen the level of movement on this G League Ignite team that, that was a high schooler. Like this is their first time really being exposed to this kind of stuff. So, I mean, he's he's, skin, he's on the skinny side. He has high hips. Like, there, I don't think that there's a possibility for him to like be your big wing guy, you know, who's, who's going to check the Kawhis and, and Paul Georges of the world. But I think that the long-term vision for him is somebody who can flip between one and twos, um, show good effort at, at point of attack and, and attach to screens well, and then really get after um, uh, the weak side and, and sniff out uh, any possibility for uh, turning defense into offense. That fits really well with the Raptors' defensive ethos, especially if you're looking at limitations. Can't guard up. Um, OG Ananobi presumably going to be there. And even Pascal Siakam has had a lot of success guarding big wings as well, especially in the playoffs against Tatum, for example. And if they do want somebody rangy on the weak side who can, as you say, turn defense into offense, that fits extremely well. So that's encouraging to hear. As far as, you know, it's interesting 
with Trey Young and how the Rockets and the Warriors, those matchups, made everyone think that you couldn't have a guy to be picked on. And Curry did a lot to enhance his defensive value and to not be, you know, where he was early in his career. But very few teams are that Rockets team. And maybe the only one that is close to that would be the healthy Nets this year. So I think, like, the weakest player on the floor currently is not as big a disadvantage as what we might have previously thought. And I think that the Hawks with Trey Young and how clever they've been hiding him and how much work it is with a 24-second shot clock to kind of sniff out uh, weak defenders, that's, that's a really interesting thing, I think, now. Defense, very complex, very intelligent. I enjoy it a lot, but... Yeah, I mean, it's... It, I, I will say that, like, teams' willingness to hunt... Um, like the worst defender on the floor is it was never going to be as universal as like people claimed it where it's just like, Oh yeah. Like find the, like find It's never going to turn into like Dykeman where it's just like, you find the bad guy, you get a switch, you pull the ball out, you go one-on-one with eight people. It's, it's just never going to be that. What it is going to be is like what happened to John Collins where they, uh, where the bucks would, would find him as the corner defender and be like, Oh, he's not going to attack and just spam actions where it's like, it's not he's the weakest on the floor. It's that we found the guy who is uncomfortable in an area and we have the specific coverage to put him, or we have the specific plays to put him in that coverage until an adjustment is made. Like, that's a thing that can be hunted. It's not like this player is a bad defender. Like, for the most part, teams will live with that and you're just never, you're rarely going to get a team that is willing to hunt a guy for 50 possessions in a game. But what you will get is eight possessions where if you're bad at a specific element that is important for, you know, a part of positional defending, People will hunt that for eight straight possessions until a switch is made or, the you know, a team is, is willing to make that adjustment. So I always thought that was overblown, but it like it matters. It matters, but it matters in a different way than the popular conception of the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Paul and Michael Porter Jr. is a good example of the, the same point you made about John Collins, except when Porter Jr. was in the weak side zone, there was just a lot of gaffes as far as decision making and Chris Paul really made the Nuggets pay for that. But, okay, um, final thoughts on Jalen Green. With everything we've said, let's, if we can get, like, 40 seconds from you on what you view as Jalen Green, the high-octane outcome of his career, and let's get Raptors fans excited if he does drop. Yeah, um, I would say that if I had to bet on one player in this class to average 25 points a game, I would have Jalen Green, and it would require any thinking. Um, I think that he has uh, specific offensive skills that are the direction that the league is going and the direction that the league is going from a playmaking sense, where um, people are starting to to move away from the idea of true heliocentrism and instead uh, willing to uh, locate I like locate decisions outside of of like what we would consider as like the guy with the most usage and the, like realizing that hey maybe there wasn't going to be a bunch of bronze floating around and like well for every you know Trey Young that there's going to be it's also just as likely that like you have Kyle Anderson and like Kyle Anderson has a number of like can do a lot of things the most important which is getting good decisions so why don't you give him the decisions and then give the scoring to somebody else instead of asking one person to do you know everything you you know. I don't want to say use the old positional system, but you suit talents to what they do best and not asking them to fit, you know, fighting the ghost of LeBron in the same way that the Jordanaires uh, fought the ghost of Jordan. So I would say that if the Raptors 
are at four and Jalen Green is there. They should take him immediately, sprint to uh, sprint to the podium, take Jalen Green, and be very happy that they have a building block who uh, complements the roster that they have and also complements the direction of the game, uh, who's going to be extraordinarily exciting uh, on and off the floor. And a, a player, a quality of player, and a level of roster fit that you don't generally get at number four. I mean, the Raptors have had great luck at number four, but just looking at the history of the game, usually there has to be some sort of compromise either on talent or on fit, and this appears to be neither. Um, so I would say, I would, if, if I were the Raptors, I, I mean, like, I think if, even if Suggs was there, I would take him over Suggs just from the, the situation that, that, that they have right now, um, regardless of, of who comes back. Just the guys that are currently there. Um, yeah, to me, this is uh, this is an ideal fit for both boys. Mm-hmm. And use your players properly. You brought up Kyle Anderson. Using him in the in the post to play make for those small, big screens to free up um, Jonas Valanciunas. Orient your players correctly and make sure that, you know, you, you play to their advantages. That's something that I think that Jalen Green would be able to do in Toronto. And I think that's a really exciting thing. Do I think it's likely? I mean, I've seen a lot of people and a lot of, you know, what would the term be? Chatter about how exciting Jalen Green is, that it's, it's hard to view him as the guy who falls. But you never really know. I would be over the moon if the Raptors got him. So the good thing about P.D. Webb is that his work is expansive and that means that he usually does a lot of it. And as somebody who has been covering the draft, um, he knows a lot about second round guys or perceived to be second round guys. This isn't necessarily saying they're second round talents. These, this list is crowdsourced from people, you know, inquiring minds, I'll say. So we're going to talk about some second round guys that maybe possibly could wind up in the Raptors' lap. There's a list of one, two, three, four, uh, five, six guys we'll be talking about. One, we're a little bit behind on film and stuff like that, but first, Dacian Nix, what are your thoughts on him? Okay, so I, uh, by the time this is out, will have published the the uh, the Dacian Nix piece that I've um, been working on for, for a week or so. Uh, Dacian, I think, had a bit of a struggle. Uh, Dacian Nix struggled in his G League night here. Um, the team wasn't really built to, to around his specific specifications, which are uh, like running a lot of pick and roll and really churning decisions. Um, and that, that was given more to, to Green and Kuminga. Um, he struggled as a shooter. Um, the splits are, are rough. It's, it's 38, 18, 72. Um, he's a big body point guard who I think um, his stock might not have been served by the G League night, but I think that his game probably was. Um, he put on, I would say, some like football muscle to deal with playing as grown men, and it didn't suit his game well. And it revealed what he needed to work on at the next level. Um, I think that as a second-round player, you're getting um, a player with who like needs to develop his jumper. The off-the-dribble stuff is, is, is the problem, his catch-and-shoot stuff. He's really res- reticent, but it, it looks and stats out much better. Um, he's a big-bodied guard who um, has a little bit of a tendency towards a hero pass, but is very creative. Um, and when he gets into the paint, he finishes very well, um, despite not having fantastic burst. Um, he's changed his body since the night season. Um, and, and he still makes really like, good decisions. He's just never going to be like a score first point guard. 
Um, I don't, I don't know where his draft range is going to be because so much of it depends on how much change has been done to the jumper and that's going to test out on workouts. But he's certainly, um, if you're a team that is looking for like a big bodied one who um, is strong at the point of attack and uh, has passing jobs, certainly interesting prospect. Mm-hmm. And born in Alaska. How many NBA players were born in Alaska? We actually have two Alaskan born players. Or, oh, no, uh, we have one Alaskan-born player and one player who grew up in Alaska in this draft cycle. JT Thor was born in Nebraska, but grew, but went to, I believe, Anchorage High School. He has a, he has a lot of hype as well, JT. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he has momentum, I would say. He's got some juice. Got some juice. Um, just, just to dig a little d- bit deeper, Dacian Nix, you said he makes good decisions. What are some of those decisions that you see that you like that he makes? So he is, uh, he's really fun out of like snaking pick and roll. Um, his biggest issue is when teams just like straight, uh, like go double under. So the guard and the big go under on pick and roll. Cause that forces him to, to decide if he wants to shoot or not. Um, and he rarely takes, uh, I would say like an interim jumper, um, prefers to, to massage the little ball a little bit and then like hesitate into a jumper. But when he gets like an ice coverage, he just puts that guard in jail every single time, carves out space, and is capable of drawing the big forward. Um, in transition, uh, he throws some, I would say, very wonderful passes, um, including this jumping no look that he did a couple of times, where he stares at a wing, jumps so that the 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 wing defender sprints over, and then throws the bounce pass to a cutter who's like cutting in front of the shooter, and it's he times it so he's a, his toes are about to touch the ground. So it looks like a jump pass. And so the guard's just like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm gambling for this. Falls out. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful one. He, I like a big body guard who throws a two-handed pass. Uh, I know like one-handed skip passing is very in vogue, but the ability when you're bigger to throw like above your head is, is really valuable. That, that extra um, bit of vision. Um, yeah. Uh, overall, I think that like he's a prospect who's probably served well by his G League year, as rough as that may seem from, like a top 25 prospect to, to being considered a second rounder. But like, I think this is probably a better learning year than it was a stock year. The two handed pass, less arc, more juice. Okay. Um, oh, actually I'm going to be selfish quick. Cause I just want to, you brought up jail in the NBA, which defender do you think is the most um, proficient jail breaker? The guy who can get out of jail the most efficiently. Is it cheating to say Chris Paul? No. He, I mean, like, I wouldn't call, like, how Chris Paul gets out, like, super technical. He just fights like crazy and has a really good understanding of angles. Um, if I had to think of, like, a guy who, like, I, I've always liked the really skinny, like, like, Matisse is really fun because Matisse is, like, sort of gives up the jail and tries to lurk. And, like, there's sort of two, like, with, with getting around jail, there's two different, like, schools that you'll talk to. You have the, the stronger guys like the stronger, smaller guards generally want to fight for like leverage and get underneath and say like, okay, like I'm going to battle at the position. Like this is sort of like how you get like the, the clips of James Harden, like trying to like back somebody down facing the wrong way. Um, then you have the the other school, which is usually skinny guys who kind of want to phantom through it where they hide in the blind spot. You think you have a layup and they, you know, they sneak up from behind it and, and get the ball. This is your cow. This is, you know, Matisse, um, so it, it sort of depends. I think there's one for, for each style. And you have guys that will do both, but generally there's a body type that a person is in a movement style a person is better suited for. Um, I like the, the angle a little bit better. 
um, because I think that phantoming works better against like mediocre players, and it's really difficult to do that against the highest level of talent. Mm-hmm. Pursuit, that's, uh, that's comfortable for some people, but I think that, yeah, you're right. The best players can kind of, they'll outfox you. Okay, this yeah. one is from Robel. Terrence Shannon Jr., thoughts on him? Uh, yeah, I'm a huge Terrence Jr. Shannon Jr. fan and would be uh, upset if he fell into the uh, second round. I feel like there would. So he comes from Texas Tech, um, which is a unique defensive system um, and one that uh, NBA draft and, and, uh, and NBA teams have had to pay a little more attention to because it's not necessarily like a read-based system. Um, it, it operates on principles where it's generally the same read every single time, depending on where the ball is on the floor. So you're always pushing flat towards the baseline. And the, the defensive off-ball reads are generally the same. This isn't how NBA defense works, and often players coming from the system sort of have to relearn once they get to the league. I mean, I think this was sort of a lot of the confusion about Jared Culver as a defender. It's like, hey, I thought this guy was good at defense. It's like, well, yes and no. He was very, very good at Texas Tech, and he's relearning a new system for the first time. Like, it's not the same thing as Syracuse's 2-3 zone, but it's not entirely different in that it's not the same reads, the same timing, or the same terminology. And so there is going to be an adjustment period. Um, this system also, I would say, pools, steals, and blocks into uh, certain positions on the floor. So if a player isn't often covering that position, it makes their steal and, and block numbers look worse. Um, and I think that's what's happening with Shannon, who's you know a, a long, bouncy athlete who doesn't have the, the steal and block rights of, uh, you know, like Zaire Smith, who comes from the same system, but Zaire Smith was covering those specific areas. Um, Shannon is a developing shooter. Um, whose jumper I like a lot. It just has some small areas of funk that need to be sorted out. He shoots with uh, like a really severe foot tilt, so he, like his feet, one of his feet is really far forward, and his hips are turned almost like eighty degrees towards the rim. Uh, it makes shooting going to his right difficult. Um, I think that he is a, a pretty easy plug and play wing, and that for all of the difficulties about his jumper, he still you know, had a 55 to shooting, shot 36% from three and 75% from free throw line. Um, he was seen as like a, more of a creator during his high school years. And then like sort of is not, and then in the draft process is seen as like a, a team first defender who can, you know, find his own shot as needed. I still think that that, that, that high school player is in there and think that there is more scoring to be unlocked as he gets more comfortable. Um, I really would have liked to see him have a higher usage than 25, but, um, Texas Tech didn't really have a ton of usage to go around. Uh, he's certainly a like a developmental candidate. I would start to look at in like the mid twenties. But if he you know shoots poorly in workouts or teams are less enthused about the translation from from uh, Chris Beard's defensive scheme to the NBA, I could I could see him falling, but not that far in the second round. Right foot tilt. That's the the Lou Williams conundrum when when fading to the right. I think um, for his jump shot. Basically, twice as many attempts in year two has a pretty significant jump as far as like his efficiency. Was there anything, as you said, it's still developing? But what did he change from year one to year two? If you saw anything, I mean, I think it was just the confidence. Um, there's there's minor stuff like I think that the gather time, like the time it took to go from like deciding to shoot to release, took less. Um, I think the footwork was cleaner. Um, there's you know he's a guy that like kind of seems right handed. 
generally. Um, a lot of his gathers are, are what would be normal for a right-hander. Um, so I think that there's still like some body, like some, some movement things to be sorted out. Um, and I think that continuing to test solve the footwork, um, full-time hop to me, he's a full-time hop guy. That would be like an adjustment I would be trying to make, uh, with him. But like, if this is a, like a, a troubled, if a troubled shooter is giving you this, then like, yeah, uh, sign me up for this for, for long-term development. This is a, this is one I very much enjoy. And just a, a really fun, tenacious defender. I like, like he's like, he's on the skinny side and he really likes to fight at point of attack. Uh, uh, enthusiastic defender. Fun to watch. Is there an idealized situation you have for him that you'd like him to fall into? Like, where do you think he would thrive? Um, so I would say like, for me, I would be thinking like sort of similar to like Kelly Oubre's usage in Phoenix, where you getting him to attack closeouts, like the goal is long-term for, for him to, to have some, uh, some passing reads, but like, it's not necessary immediately. Um, but just like getting him like, you know, uh, getting him to corners where he's comfortable saying, you know, if you get a hard closeout, you know, go put it on somebody's head. Um, and then toggling him between twos and threes defensively with the occasional four. So, I mean, I think that that could be a lot of places. It's just making sure that he's kind of like the third wing um, in in a team with multiple wing options to throw at, at uh, you know, the primaries and secondaries of the world. Okay. Bones Highland, thoughts on him? Oh, yes. Uh, Bones Highland is most certainly a first-round pick. Um, Bones Highland uh, took 13 threes per hundred. If I have this correct, um, which is uh, a number, it is a high number um, that puts him like near the Steph Curry, Trey Young type three point volume. Uh, he shot 38 or 37 percent on on uh, almost nine threes per 36 minutes. Uh, he takes ambitious jumpers uh, and he knocks them down. Uh, double step backs, volleyball line. Uh, you know, negative momentum. It doesn't matter. It's going up and it's going down. Um, probably the second best handle in the class, like him or Sharif, depending on, on how you prefer, like handle, how you like aesthetically prefer handle. I mean, Sharif's probably a little bit more uh, functional just because like he's a point guard and Bones is, is, is a, like a shooter combo slasher type. Um, the, the issue with him and why he wasn't uh, in the NBA as a after his freshman year was that he never got fouled. I think he had like a fourteen percent foul rate, and it, it doubled. It's at thirty two now, um, which is I'm, like I'm not gonna say it's excellent, but it is a huge improvement for a guy who tends skinny, and for him to to double his uh, his free throw rate in a season where he had like a. 55% three-point attempt rate is really positive. Um, he handled huge usage. Um, he's, like, never going to be – like, he's he's not a, a lockdown defender by any means, but, like, he, he has quick hands and, like, certainly has an understanding of passing angles um, defensively. That, like, he, like, there's something there. He, I think he's always going to be the fifth defender in a lineup. But you can do a lot worse than uh, – self-creating shooter with range within the gym uh, with a, a really, really just liquid handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, his scrimmage game 
at the combine went exceptionally well. Did it not? I, I saw a couple highlights yeah. from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if there was anything like the the money you could have got on Bones Highland fries in a, a scrimmage setting. Like, there's just that's a setting that he is like basically hardwired to dominate because he could shoot from extended range and like there's not that you can, in scrimmages people don't really build walls to protect the rim. So he's always just going to like slink by, you know, uh, whatever help defense is there. Um, and yeah, when he gets hot, it's a, uh, it's really fun to watch. Is he, is he a gambler defensively? Like his yeah. steals? Yeah. Okay. I kind of figured. Okay. Let's, yeah. let's do uh Wies camp, Joe Wies camp. Okay. Uh, Joe's Wies camp is, um, it, it, I mean, like is probably one of the three best shooters in this draft. Um, I think he's the best by percentage. Um, the three to me are Kispert, Wieskamp, and uh, and Bones. Uh, Bones doesn't have a percentage in the forties, but Bones took shots that like you can't expect people to shoot forty percent of. Um, Wieskamp is uh, a, another combine riser. Um, he tested like forty-two inch um, uh, vertical but there's some questions about how standing reaches are measured. So like at the combine, your vertical is, is basically like whatever number you, you jump on the little like spinny thing uh, minus your standing reach and standing reaches are um, pretty easy to fudge. And uh, so you'll see players who have like a plus six wingspan, but their standing reaches is, is for whatever reason, like three inches shorter than expected. And suddenly they jump, you know, 48 inches. Um, I'm not saying that this is what's happening, but I would compare, you know, like Joe Wieskamp or, or Keon Johnson or uh, Jericho Sims standing reach to expected standing reaches of others and make a decision for yourself. Uh, again, no, no particular accusation, just noting that, you know, there is a thing that happens at these combines. And it, Wieskamp still jumped a very high number. Um, Wieskamp still played very well. And uh, anybody who shoots 46% from three uh, taking six threes per game, like in, to be honest, he should have been shooting more threes, um, is going to have value in the league. Um, if he moves his feet well enough is going to be a question. Um, I think that if you are a person who, who likes the idea of Corey Kispert, but doesn't necessarily want to pay his Kispert prices, uh, Wieskamp is, is sort of the same idea, but a player who is going to be either like a late first or, or early second bet on, on the same sorts of skills. Okay. While I have you here, let's uh, this is a departure from the second round thing, but as we know, bones and maybe everybody who's been mentioned so far has been a departure from second round, but let's do the Corey Kispert thing because quite a few people have asked me about him. I'm not sure why Raptors fans are so enamored, but I've, I've been asked about him quite a few times. What are your thoughts on Kispert? Yeah, um, Kispert's really fun. Um, I don't really understand what you mean by they're asking, like they want Tim to be taken at four. No, they just keep asking me about him. And I, I say like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't see a roadmap to Kispert, but maybe because Gonzaga and Gonzaga has always been kind of tied to Canada as well. I'm not sure, but there's, there's interest and not, not as, you know, this is the roadmap to get him just for, people who I mean, listen to the podcast what what do you I think mean I guess it, the the roadmap might be like entering the Brandon Ingram sweepstakes and giving up enough that you also get number 10 like 
there's a, that's obviously a much larger trade, but like that's, I don't think I would take Gisbert at 10, but like, I guess there's a roadmap of sorts. Um, I think that the curious thing about Kispert is the shooting is extremely real, but it's also not extremely versatile. So Kispert has really deep range, but his shooting profile is like basically the opposite of Bones, where like Bones didn't get a lot of what I would consider as like easy looks. And Kispert is really capable of shooting off, uh, off, you know, negative momentum, off you know, sprints, catch and shoots, but he isn't really comfortable shooting off the dribble. So he never really had to, I mean, partially because like Gonzaga was a uh, legendarily good basketball team, but also because like when you're a legendarily good basketball team, what's the point in doing anything other than like the thing that's beating teams by 60 points? So he wasn't really in a, a space to like explore the studio space. And as a result of that, only took like nine jumpers off the dribble, I think. And I think if you're going to take a shooter at any, like in the lottery, you either need to have a roadmap for maximize, if they are like a, a catch and shoot guy or, you know, a movement shooter, getting as much value out of that by having a playbook that's centered around that. I mean, like, you know, the, the Doc Rivers, JJ Redick thing, but their playbook was centered around the, the shooting gravity of JJ Redick. Um, or if it's a, you know, a shooter off the dribble, having them involved in, in elements where you can create that gravity in a different way. And I think that to return that value, you have to lean in on that. And I'm not certain that the Raptors have that roster or really like the willingness to carve out that much for a, uh, a, a catch and shoot guy. Like, I, I think the idea holds, like, I, I think he's a much better defender than what he is given credit for, um, partially because he kind of looks like a Degrassi character. Um, but the, if he were a guy who had more shooting off the bounce juice, it would make more sense to me just based on where the roster is and, and knowing that there is a bit of a hole for, uh, off the dribble creation. If Kispert can't make it in the league, there's a spot for him on the handsome boy modeling podcast for sure. I mean, I, I would be shocked if he doesn't, but I mean, maybe, uh, you know, Maybe in the future. I mean, everybody, you know, a basketball career, even its best, only lasts about 15 years. And, like, maybe he's going to be the next CEO of the Handsome Boy Model Podcast Network, you know, in, in 2046 or whatever. That's right. Okay. Um, next guy, David Johnson, who you are admittedly not finished your, your deep dive on. The scouting process has not been completed for him. But is there any preliminary things that um, people should know? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, the, the question is, like, is this just an idea that, like, the Raptors love every big-bodied guard? Like, this is just everybody has a type, and, that like, Masai seems to love his uh, his guards to be, you know, a, a little bigger. Like, you know, in the weight room sense of the word, not like in the uh, John Hammond um, Orlando Magic sense. It's, yeah, you, you'd think so, right? There's, there's always been that kind of like hearty, chunky soup aspect to the, the guards that they're bringing on. Maybe that's why Campaign didn't kick it in Toronto, right? Obviously, Campaign deserves a lot of love for reinventing and working on so many micro skills and stuff like that. And, but maybe he didn't make it in Toronto and didn't develop that there because he's a very slight fella. Look, Phoenix likes a slight guy. I'm just going to say it. They, they, they seem to like a slight guy and Toronto is, is just cut from a slightly different cloth. You have to meet certain lofty expectations physically. 
and like not everybody can be built like Kyle Lowry. And that's great. It's just that Toronto might not be the place for you as a guard. Okay. Uh, Nemius Keda, thoughts on him? I mean, it all comes down to how much you can you think he can move his feet. Um, Nemius is is a, a massive human being, but he's basically an exclusively drop big, um, which I think is like, you know, uh, it has value um, despite, you know, drop being um, the the drop conversation is X and O nerds version of like analytics where like it can be blamed for anything. Like anytime a team loses and they play one possession of drop, they're like, well, this is drops fault. And it's like, well, we don't have to do this y'all. Um, I think that with any like massive, like if you're drafting a center, you have to build uh, like a, a scheme that brings surplus value and it has to align perfectly with the other players. If you're drafting them later, like you're not when you're drafting a big, it's it's more about already having like a four man lineup or the theory of a four man lineup, and you're adding a fifth. Um, and I don't really have that five like that that four man lineup that plays a certain way that you can track and drop Nemius into. Um, that's just my general philosophy on bigs. Like if you were to say like Eve Pons, for example, um, who like is a player who will either be drafted in the second round or or will be UDFA. If you wanted to say, like, uh, you know, we have a four-man lineup, which I think that the, the the Raptors do, and you're like, we want to play this, you know, six-foot-six center who tries to block literally every shot, who plays as hard as possible, um, who will take jumpers, though it's still developing, knocks down free throws, um, and plays harder than basically anybody ever. I'm like, yeah, I, that makes sense to me, at, like, in terms of, like, how you would do, how you would get him onto the floor and that, like, there's already a – a style of play that doesn't need to be adapted for him because it just has, um, you know, the institutional values already in place and simply a, uh, an addition to that. Or Nemius, like there, I think there has to be more adjustments. And that's just something I'm uncomfortable with with draft capital for, draft capitals for centers unless they have some other uh, fantastic skill like shooting or the ability to run offense through them or something. Eve Pons has, Eve Pons has never made a business decision in his life, and I love him for it. He's in, like... He's uh, one, he's like one of the most fantastic people um, uh, in, in this draft, uh, just in terms of be, from the term of being cool, but also from the perspective of like, he's such a good guy that he doesn't show up in his own legitimately awesome highlight tape because he tries to dunk on and, and block every shot. But he also shows up in other people's because he will try to jump for stuff that he just has no business jumping for. He's like at the free throw line. Somebody else is about to lay it in. He'll jump for it. Somebody's about you know about to dunk. He has no chance. He'll jump for it, um, and I think that's great. And that that shows a loving and, and, and focused team spirit. It's uh, perpetually in the vicinity, and something to love as well. PD, I think I think we've done it. I think we've had the Jalen Green plus some not really second round options um, conversation. How do you feel about it? I feel great, honestly. I'm pretty sure in the Toronto market, this is going to be the de facto Jalen Green podcast. So I think we've really done something here. Thank you very much for coming on, man. Thank you. And so now the floor is set for you to plug, plug, plug away. You can you can go heavy-handed sales pitch. You can do the humble thing. Whatever you want to do, the floor is yours. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me on the, on this wonderful podcast, uh, the definitive Jalen Green podcast. Um, the other ones are, unfortunately, um, bootleg. Um, it's been stamped. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at above the break three. Um, 
my writing is on Patreon, uh, where all the work is free. But if you have it in your heart or in your budget to throw me a couple bucks, it's greatly appreciated. Um, stats and video packages are not particularly cheap, and the uh, donations of patrons uh, have kept me uh, doing this rather than you know having to like you know wash dishes or, or work tables during a pandemic. And I cannot thank them or potentially you want to become them enough um, so shout out to them uh i've uh, i write long form uh draft articles um i think i've done like 10 in this cycle including jalen green um, which can be found there um, if you are not so much of a reader and more of a visual person uh, i've started a series called let's watch film where me and a various guest um join me to watch a game from a prospect talk about what we're seeing talk about uh you know how we evaluate examples from somebody uh you know another player doing that particular skill well how you can work on it it's just a you know spending an hour and a half watching basketball and hanging out uh, we usually do that on fridays um uh, if this is coming out monday um, tonight we will be doing the evan mobley stream with ricky o'donnell uh, uh which can be found on twitch.tv slash pdweb if you can't make it it's all on youtube um uh, just search like to watch film and you will find me so just want to say thank you for anyone who has been on this journey with me. And thank you, Samson, for having me. Of course. And now here's, here's my time to double down, PD, especially since you're always so gracious to come on and talk to me, whether it's this podcast or bouncing around. You always say yes. And listener, I give cosigns all the time. And it's largely because I only bring people on to the podcast that are of year. But PD, the way that his work informs the conversation is in a really healthy way, in a super informative way, and in a draft culture that sometimes at the top end is just only interested in providing answers, he's very interested in providing process. And not only, it's not wrong either. It's somebody who knows a great deal about basketball, which I hope you've absorbed throughout this podcast, inviting you into their thought process how they evaluate and it is infinitely valuable because dripping with every sentence is some sort of minute thing about basketball that I've never and a lot of people have never thought about and it introduces so many different aspects of basketball to fans in a digestible way and I just his, his work is phenomenal it is one of the best things that I encounter when he puts out something new I prioritize it I listen and I always learn a lot and I think it's just, it's a fantastic resource unto itself. So PD, thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I'm sure we'll be linking up for something else later on. And yeah, I hope you have a great day, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And listener, uh, that's it. But if you want to rate the podcast, feel free to do so. But only if it's a good rating. I'm not really interested in the bad ones. They, uh, it's bad vibes. And I think it's a good podcast. So if you want to, if you want to support, feel free to do so. Check out PD's stuff, the Patreon. Let's watch film on Twitch or on YouTube. And uh, yeah, I'll let you get out of here. So thanks for tuning in. Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, the definitive Jalen Green podcast. Have a blessed day and goodbye.